you would give us ready and obedient hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, and at this time we will dismiss children to Children's Church. I really appreciate the great singing today. It is, is it not encouraging to hear other Christians reminding you that it will be worth it all? Right? We need that reminder because, man, there's so many things that tell us that it's not going to be worth it. And so we need to sing every week as an act of defiance against the approaching darkness. Right? We need to sing every week to, to tell our own hearts that we need to glorify the King of Kings. Some of you are going to go into jobs tomorrow that are challenging and that glorifying the King of Kings is not immediately easy. And our desire is for you to go into work tomorrow with a song that is ringing in your ears and in your heart that will carry you through the week. That's why we try not to sing dumb stuff around here. We try to see things that, sing things that say something that is true and something that will carry us, carry us through. Well, I invite you to join me in your Bibles and to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter number 6. And if you're uh, looking, there's not an Ephesians chapter 7, so we are really coming down to the end of uh, this study. What we're going to do starting next week is we are going to slow down a little bit and begin a sort of a series within a series on the armor of God. Uh, It's just such a great section that's so tightly packed, I think we would benefit from slowing down with that. Today we'll be looking at Ephesians 6, verses 5 to 9. Just invite you to follow along as I read our our text this morning. Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 5. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and singleness of your heart, as unto Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And ye masters, do the same things unto them, forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. Over the course of the average person's life, I think we're all pretty average people here, You'll spend around 110,000 hours at work. That's a lot. You're like, I think I put in that many just this week. All the overtime and all the extra projects and work that came home that I did off the clock that I wasn't paid for. If you did all of it sort of in one unbroken time frame, it would be 13 total years of working 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. 13 years of your life. On this planet of the 80 years or the 70 years or the 90 years that God gives you on this planet, 13 of those devoted to to working and doing something that someone else tells you to do. Of course, those 13 years are often spread out over from the age of 20 to you retire at, say, 68. That's a lot of time that we spend working. By contrast, you'll spend just... Uh, just a few years, three years, grand total of your life on vacation. Like all your vacations combined, three years total will be spent doing vacation. On average, you will spend more than 12 times longer working than socializing. 
Uh, for what it's worth, by the way, uh, the, the studies that break down how we spend our lives says that you'll spend around 235 days of your life just standing in line. So just think of that, that your life is being sucked away from you as you wait for the person in front of you to get through the cash register. You'll spend more time working than doing anything else in life except sleeping. Uh, 33 years of, of your life will be spent in bed, absolutely comatose, hopefully, not tossing and turning. If we are going to live lives that glorify God in everything, okay, so 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether therefore ye eat or drink, and whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. If we're going to live lives that are to the glory of God, if we are to live lives that are under the lordship of Jesus, it has to include our work. I think sometimes we fall into a monastery mindset. Here's what I mean by that. That we think that the only things that bring God glory are things like praying and reading the Bible and going to the church and handing out tracts. Think about just this week. If you were here for Sunday school and here for Sunday morning and then again for Sunday night, and then a small group, maybe four hours a week spent in church. Forty hours, if not more, will be spent at work. So if we're going to say the only parts of life that can glorify God are the churchy parts, the only parts that can glorify Jesus are the times when we are, we are praying or fasting or reading our Bibles. That means there are huge swaths of our lives that will never amount to anything. Guess what? Jesus did not die to simply have four hours a week of our lives. Jesus did not die so that God would be glorified with just a little tiny slice of the pie of the hours that we have in a given week. He died so that God could be glorified in all of it. Listen, if we can eat or drink to God's glory, surely then we can work to God's glory. We can sleep to God's glory. We can rest to God's glory. We can socialize to God's glory. Glorifying God and living a life that will matter in eternity is so much bigger than just having a daily quiet time. It's so much more than that. For far too many Christians, we expect to meet Jesus in the prayer closet, but not in the workplace. For many, we functionally check our Christianity at the door of our place of employment. We assume that the gospel stays at home but doesn't come with us to work. What this text is calling us to is calling for us to bring the gospel with us to work. This text is calling for us in the jobs that we do, no matter how menial or how seemingly trivial and how repet- no matter how repetitive, to be able to bring the presence of God and a purpose to bring God glory even in those. If Christ is Lord of all, if we sing, we will glorify the King of Kings. If we say, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. That includes the hours that, that, that occur between the time you clock in and the time you clock out. This passage shows us what this looks like. This passage shows us what it looks like for the gospel to be at work, to go with us at work, to transform the way that we do our jobs. Now, you notice that term in verse 5, servants, as kind of softening the sense of the original. The, 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 the Greek is the word doulos, which would have been the term to ancient readers that would have been bond servants, or we might even use the term slaves. Slavery was a ubiquitous institution in the Roman Empire. By some estimates, there were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire at the time the Apostle Paul wrote this. By some estimates, 33% of a third of the population of Greece and of the Italian peninsula were slaves. And as the gospel spread and as the gospel was proclaimed, myriads of slaves were coming to faith in Jesus. They were putting their faith in Christ and being welcomed into the church. As this letter was read to the church at Ephesus, you could, as we get now to servants, a whole segment of the church would sit up and listen because 
So many within the church would have been douloi, would have been bond servants. And what Paul calls them to, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is to work to God's glory in their occupations. Now, there are big differences between Roman slavery and the kind of slavery, slavery we're familiar with from our history books uh, that happened in, in our own history. Uh, the slavery in Rome was a much more fluid institution. Often it was a stepping stone to sort of climb the social ladder. Oftentimes slaves would be, by the time of Paul, some 50% of them were being released by the age of 30. Most were highly educated. They did just about everything in the empire. So it's not quite the same as chattel slavery. Nonetheless, they were regarded as property. Nonetheless, many were mistreated. Many were treated quite terribly. So we should not read this and read Paul as endorsing every form of human servitude that's existed in history. That's not his purpose. Rather, he is addressing the world as he found it, as the gospel is making headway into the Roman Empire, as slaves are coming to faith in Jesus, as masters are coming to faith in Jesus, saying, here's what this is going to look like. The more you study the institution of of Roman slavery, the more you'll see there are more parallels than immediately meet the eye to our modern idea of employment. In a sense, when you go to work and you clock in, your time belongs to your your boss, to your master. They're sort of buying you for a certain amount of time to do a, a certain job. Now, thankfully, you actually get paid for it. They didn't get paid for it. You actually make some money and can pay the bills through it. But the point being, there's somebody in your life who can tell you what to do with a large segment of your life. You're not really free to go do what you want and still keep your job. By addressing servants who are working, doing the bulk of work in the Roman Empire, most of it was done by the douloi, by the slaves, by the bond servants. Paul is speaking into our places of employment. He is speaking into the jobs that we do Monday through Friday and saying, here's how we should live to the glory of God. All work, whether it is paid or unpaid, should be done ultimately for Christ. That's what he is saying. The thing that makes work work is not that you get paid for it, but is that it is this labor that you're trying to meet a goal, trying to get something accomplished. They weren't paid for it. We do get paid for it. Stay-at-home moms, oh, I don't work. No, you do work. Stay-at-home moms do a ton of work. That is work that can be done for the glory of God, being self-employed, doing work to the glory of God. If you're a young person, going to school, in a sense, is kind of like work. Got other people telling you how to structure your time, and you're going to do long division now, and now we're going to learn history. There's much to learn here from this. So what does, Christ, what does a Christian work ethic look like? How do we take the gospel to work? What is it going to look like for God to be present as we do what we do Monday through Friday? So we break this down. I think there are six key attitudes that mark a Christian approach, a Christian outlet, outlook at work. So how should, we, how should we behave? What should our attitudes be as we engage in our jobs if we're going to do this to the glory of Christ? Well, first off, just put it very simply, be respectful. Verse 5 says, servants, be obedient. Now, just a reminder, this is falling under the whole household code here at the end of Ephesians 5. Paul has finished saying, walk in wisdom, be filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit means ranking under, being submissive in the relationships we find ourselves. So wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. And here, servants, obey your masters. Employees, Obey your employers. Obey your boss. Be respectful towards your supervisor. Now, notice what it says. Servants, be obedient to whom? To them that are your masters. And notice this phrase, 
according to the flesh. It's kind of a roundabout way to say you're human masters. They are not ultimate in your life. They are merely human. You ultimately have a master who is in heaven that has ultimate sway over your lives. So what do we make of Paul speaking to slaves? Some people have really stumbled over this and say, Paul does not come along and say the institution of slavery must be immediately abolished and now let's go pick it in the streets and try to tear it down. For one thing, Christians in the early Roman Empire did not have any social influence, so it would have been a waste to say something like that. For another thing, Paul is not at all condoning the institution. Rather, he's undermining it every turn. The fact that he is addressing servants at all is saying, you're not property, you are a responsible moral agent before God. Greco-Roman household codes wouldn't waste time to address servants because they're not even people, they're not even persons before the law. By, By speaking to them at all, Paul is subverting and undermining the whole underpinnings of the system of slavery. These are not property, they are persons made in the image of God who are responsible before God. Verse 9 is incredible. When he speaks to the masters, do the same things to them, knowing that your master and their master is also in heaven, and there's no respect of persons to say there's absolute equality before God, no matter your social position. That is a sledgehammer to the props under slavery. When Paul will say things like he says in Colossians 3.11, that in the renewal that is in Christ, there's neither bond nor free. He says the same thing in Galatians 3.28 and 1 Corinthians 12.13. He is sowing the seeds of abolition. He's lighting the fuse that over time will explode the entire structure that makes slavery plausible. So do not read this and don't let anyone tell you, oh, look, the Bible was cool with slavery. No, the Bible is addressing the world as it really is in its fallen condition. While building those, the, the, what is being addressed on some assumptions that if they are believed and carried to their logical conclusion are incompatible with slavery, incompatible with this notion. It's not a mistake that it has been Christianity in in human history that has been the greatest force for human abolition and human equality because of these assumptions that are here. So servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh. Paul's call to bond servants and thus to employees and students and volunteers and stay-at-home moms is have this, this respect To your boss, follow orders, carry out instructions. This term assumes the authority of the boss, of the director, of the CEO, of the employer, of the teacher. In fact, structurally, the main verb all the way to verse 8 is that verb, be obedient, everything else is telling us how. Have this attitude of obedience, this readiness to do the job that you are given. So our obedience, what does this look like? It should be respectful, it should be humble. What if the boss is a real jerk? 1 Peter 2 addresses that. He says, you you don't just render this obedience to the kind and gentle, but to the froward, to those who who are cruel. You still show this respect to the position because authority comes from God. It's not the, necessarily the individual who is respectable, but the position that is shown respect. Now, Paul says this um, because he's recognizing that within the congregation, there are sets of slaves and masters who are now brothers in Christ. In First. First uh, Timothy 6, he addresses that situation. Even if your, your master is now a brother in Christ, you are equal at the table of the Lord. You might even have a situation where a servant and a master, they both get saved, and the servant becomes a pastor in the church, has authority within the church, but within that sphere of work, 
He's under the other guy's authority. You might have a situation, you could imagine a situation like this where you go to church with your boss and you teach a Sunday school class and he's in your class and listening to what you're, what you're saying. In regards to that class, yes, you have that authority to teach God's word, but that doesn't translate into, I don't have to do what he says at work. Sometimes that happens in Christian circles. You get an employer and an employee who are both Christians, and the guy thinks, oh, since he's a Christian, I don't have to show him the respect because now we're equal brothers in Christ. Paul is saying, no, you have this attitude of respect. You be respectful. So resist the urge to take to social media, to badmouth your boss. Refuse the temptation to mouth off. Avoid the backstabbing chit-chat with your co-workers around the water cooler. Honor and respect the boss because he has been put there by God. Now, what's the reason for this? It's interesting when Paul says, husbands love your wives, he grounds that reality in creation and something that God established as good and right. When he says, children, obey your parents, he says, for this is right. When he comes to the institution of slavery, he doesn't ground it in any kind of transcendent reality because slavery is a result of the fall. Right, that, that should tell us something. But what he does ground this obedience in is not in the goodness of the institution of slavery, but in the authority of Christ. Now, notice the phrase in verse 5. Obey them which are your masters, that phrase, with fear and trembling. There's two ways we could read it. It could be fear and trembling regarding my boss. I really respect him, and I'm fearful and trembling. I just really respect him. Or it could be with fear and trembling and singleness of your heart as unto Christ. So which is it? Is it fear and trembling for the boss? Show him this just absolute respect. Or is it fear and trembling for Christ? And I think it is the latter. Here's why. Look back in Ephesians 5, verse 21. This is the sort of the overarching title over this whole section, flowing out of being filled with the Spirit. Submitting yourselves one to another in what? The fear of God. So the whole section is headed by, you are fearing God ultimately, and because of that, You show respect to the authorities he's put in place. In the fear of God. This is not, I'm afraid of my boss. I'm afraid of losing my job. And I better just sort of quake in my boots and sort of go around and just sort of obsequious, being nice all the time. And, oh, yes, sir. No, this is, I respect the authority of Christ ultimately. He's my Lord. He's my master. And because I respect and reverence and worship Christ, It changes the way I work. Another reason I say that is in the parallel passage in Colossians. Okay, so Colossians and Ephesians are the twin epistles. They're both sent at the same time. They cover the same ground. In Colossians 3 and verse 22, Paul says, Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing who? God. So ultimately, this fear and reverence is afforded to God. So when I say be respectful, this is not, okay, I'm just going to be respectful to my boss. Ultimately, we're saying be respectful to the boss, to the master who is in heaven, to the CEO who rules over all things. This is not just on a human level. So when we say a Christian work ethic is not just come and be respectful. Listen, there are unsaved pagans who have learned to be respectful to their bosses. They know which side their bread is buttered on. A Christian does it for a completely different reason. A Christian shows respect to the boss and respect to the employer because he shows respect to Christ, because Jesus is worthy of worship. Now, when we talk about fear, fear is on a a continuum, right? That that, that one word fear can cover a whole spectrum. It could be terror, and I'm afraid to draw near to Jesus. Or if you are a believer in Jesus, fear gets transformed into worship and reverence where you ever respect him. It's that latter kind of fear. So why should Christians show respect for human authority? Because we submit ourselves to heavenly authority. 
That's the argument the Bible makes over and over again. Not because human authority is always right, it's often wrong. But because divine and heavenly authority is always right. We were referring to Christ. We work in the worshipful reverence of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He's the ultimate authority. The boss is an imperfect stand-in. Respect human authority because we honor heavenly authority. That really helps. So what do I do when the boss is really not a good guy, when he's unethical? Well, if there's ways that you can appeal and go to HR or go to the person who he's accountable to, by all means do that. If there are appropriate ways to, to, to ensure accountability is meted out, do that. But ultimately you are submitting to the authority of King Jesus. The fact that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would come to people, servants who were doing really menial tasks like digging wells and serving food and cooking dinner and doing all of these things and says, obey. He's not saying this because he is supporting the institution, the goodness of slavery. He's doing this because he believes in the goodness of work. We live in a day where work is regarded as a four-letter word. Oh, I have to go to work. It's this awful thing that we don't want don't to do, and Monday is the day that we dread, and Saturday is the day that we look forward to, and you know, there's the, the whole, thank God it's Friday. I'm finally done with work. Work's regarded as this, this cancer on human existence, as this invasion. But that is not how the Bible views work. The Bible views work as something that is innately and inherently good, depending on what it is that you're doing. If your job is, well, for a living, I work for the mafia and rob banks. That's not good. That violates God's law. But work that's legitimate, that serves people, that, that does something lawful, can be inherently good. Here's why. Genesis 1.28. Genesis 1 is before Genesis 3. He came to church for profound theological truth. Here it is. Genesis 1 is before Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is where the fall, where sin enters into the world. So Genesis 1, before sin has come along to mess everything up, God creates man in his own image, and God says, let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over everything in the universe. Let them subdue. You know what that's going to require? That's going to require a whole lot of effort to subdue the creation. Before man ever sinned, God gave man a mission which was to take dominion over his creation, to steward his creation. God makes Adam and Eve, he puts man, Adam and Eve, in a garden to keep it, to tend it. They weren't just there to walk around all day and just admire the, the, the blossoms that were growing on the trees. They were there to do work, to plant trees, and to make sure everything was growing as it should. Real work. Now the fall comes along in Genesis 3, and one of the things that God says is, you know what's going to happen now? Thorns and thistles are going to grow up, and you're going to have to work by the sweat of your brow before the fall, man would work with creation, cut with the grain. With the fall now, we're working against it. Creation is fighting against us. Because of the fall, entropy conspires against our best laid plans. Weeds grow unbidden. Leaks spring unrequested. Conflicts with co-workers explode unannounced. Why is that? Because we live in a fallen world. Work is hard. Work is exhausting. And yet, in spite of the fall... The goodness of work still remains. You can think of it like words that are on a page written in pencil and you get an eraser and you kind of erase them, but you can still see the dim outline of those words. The fall has come along and sort of, sort of obscured the original goodness, but it's still there under the scribbling and under the, the little pieces of rubber. Scribbled over, but still legible. Marred, but still intact. 
You think about some of the work we do. Some of the work we do is a direct fulfillment of go take dominion over the creation. So if you're a scientist and you're out discovering you know, what happens in the solar system or under a microscope, you're figuring out how God's universe was made. What does it mean to take dominion? It means to figure out all of the potentialities that are encoded into the creation and then use those for human flourishing. That's all scientific endeavor. Other forms of work are a result of the fall. If there had been no fall, there would have been no doctors and no nurses because there would have been no pain and no death. So doctors and nurses and medical researchers and techs, the, the, the job that you have is one that's almost little r redemptive. No, not redemptive in saving people from their sin, but little r redemptive in saying, here's the curse pushing in and you're pushing back against the curse and making life in a fallen world a little more tolerable. Think about the the jobs that we have to have because of sin. We have police officers who fight crime. We have firefighters who run into burning buildings and save people's lives. We have accountants who make sure money isn't being stolen. Here's what I'm trying to say is be respectful. You're serving your heavenly master because every job really is serving the heavenly master. He's the one who created us and gave us this original task to take dominion over the creation. And he's the one who brought this judgment on the world that became as a result of sin that so many tasks are seeking to mitigate. Through work, we can mitigate the effects of the fall by reducing pain and minimizing suffering and researching cures and fighting crime and preventing tragedies. Other people who are in the arts mimic God's creativity. So we're made in the image of God, which means in some little way we're a little bit like God. God's a creator. Just look around outside at all the variety of trees. You can just look around the room and see all the variety of just noses and ears in this room to be like, God's got a lot of creativity. And there's some people who come along who have that creative bent and they paint pictures and write symphonies and, 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 and come up with poetry. What are we doing? We're acting as sort of sub-creators, taking the stuff that God has made and arranging it in beautiful ways. Arranging colors that he created, organizing the the notes of the scale that he first played, employing the languages that he wrote, building with the materials that he gave us to build structures and to design things. Here's what I'm saying. It might not feel like your Excel spreadsheet is eternally significant. It may not mean that your daily daily routine will matter a thousand years from now. But work really has meaning in God's creation. Your boss may not see it. Nobody may appreciate it. But if it is done with a heart for Christ, it's carrying out that creation mandate, pushing back against the fall. So work respectfully, like with a heart of respect to the creator who assigned that task to you. If your job is one of learning and teaching, discovering what is in God's universe so we can bring him glory in it. What a task. Let me give you a second trait of of, of Christian approach to work is this, be focused. It says, okay, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling as to Christ. But there's this little phrase, in singleness of your heart, in sincerity of your heart. You're not working with ulterior motives, trying to be like, let me see if I can sort of get something out of my boss. You could think of a slave in, in, in Paul's congregation being like, well, my master is a Roman senator, or he's the local, you know, the local centurion. And, and if I can sort of get some, I can maybe jockey for, no, he's saying, no, you're not working with ulterior motives. That word singleness it can be defined this way. It's personal integrity expressed in word and action. It's simplicity, sincerity, uprightness, frankness. It's just what you see is what you get. It's honesty. 
working with honesty. Titus 2 gives instructions to servants, and it says this. When you're working, you should not be purloining, but showing all good fidelity. Now, purloining is not a word. Anybody use that word this week? Okay, it's, it's when you go into work, when no one's looking, you're, you're, you're running off with staples from the supply room. Uh, you're, you're taking big things of paper from the, from the printer. You're, you're, you're running off with the tools from work, just kind of pocketing. I'm not getting paid enough anyway, so I'm going to make sure I get paid myself. You can think the temptation in Paul's day, slaves, who are getting nothing to be going to steal from my master. Saying, no, the, the Christian worker should be honest and trustworthy where nobody is worried about you running off with stuff. Nobody's worried about you sort of fudging the clock in and clock out times while you're at work. Where there is honesty and trustworthiness. Workplace theft has always been a, always been a problem. Uh, and, you know, big corporations like Walmart have to factor it into their budget for inventory loss. That's just, imp- that's just people who work there walking off the job with stuff. We had a situation last year when we were buying these TVs. We were supposed to get two of them delivered. One of them got delivered, and they said the two of them were delivered. Somebody's got a TV. Like, I don't know who, but somebody who said that they delivered it didn't deliver it. That kind of thing is so rampant, and it's almost to a place where, oh, everybody's doing it. A Christian worker should be someone who's, no, I'm serving Christ. Thou shalt not steal, and that applies to paper clips. With singleness of heart, that would call for focus on our job. It's not enough just to show up and then sort of mentally check out. But God wants us to have our hearts in our work. The, the writer of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, says the sleep, the rest of a laboring man is sweet. Right? You work hard, and you're focused, and then you rest really well. But I would add this, the restlessness of a distracted tinkerer is ceaseless. We live in a world where people don't really focus on their work, and they don't really rest well. It's just this big muddle of distraction all the time. In our digitized world, we can easily be everywhere and nowhere at the same time. You can be at work, but not really working, at rest, but not really resting. I would say in singleness of heart means when I'm at work, I'm working, and I'm focused, and I'm putting in the effort, and then I really do rest. You really do unplug. Listen, leisure and rest aren't the same. Like, oh, I rested. I watched TV for five hours. That's not rest. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. The seventh shall be a Sabbath, and in it thou shalt not do any work. Could it be that the restlessness and the burnout and the exhaustion and turnover that people have in their jobs is not because we work too much? Those of you who are older would say people aren't working as much as they used to. It's not that we work too much, but it's that we rest too little. We fill our off hours with distractions, and we leave ourselves unrested, and we leave ourselves frazzled. If we don't work with singleness of heart, and if we don't rest with singleness of heart, we will be left in a place where we're feeling dissatisfied, empty, and scattered. But again, ultimately, notice how Paul continuously says, okay, be focused here, but really the focus is vertical and on Christ, right? So be respectful, yes, to your boss, but ultimately to Jesus. Have the singleness of heart as unto Christ. The focus is on Jesus. We're serving ultimately to him. We obey as to Christ. We fear as to Christ. We focus as to Christ. Let's just make this really practical. You think about the slaves in Paul's day. Go pull the weeds again. Okay? And even you think about all the jobs we do, they get done again and again. Go pull the weeds again. Like, I just did that like six months ago. What's up with that? Re-roof the house again. Do the laundry 
Again, do the dishes. Again, change the oil. Again, write a sermon. Again, do the taxes. Again, and there's all of these repetitive tasks. And is Jesus really in that? Listen, if Paul could say to first century slaves, do your work with a heart focused on Christ, surely the work that we do can be done with a focus on Christ. Even these things, even the dishes in the sink, even the spreadsheet that you're the only one who knows about, all of that can be done for Christ. You see, Jesus breaks into every room of our homes. Jesus accompanies us to every appointment on our calendar. Jesus attaches himself to every task on our to-do list. And he wants all of it to be done as to him. So whether that's the the clinking keyboard or or, or the pounding hammer or the teacher's lectern, the scientist's microscope, all can become instruments of praise in the hands of the humblest saint. You don't have to get up and play an instrument in church to be making music to your creator. We live in a universe that was designed to be a cathedral of praise, and any corner of it can become a place of worship, and any work done in it can be be an ode to the king. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. What I'm trying to put before you is a vision of work that's not just go go and work harder, but it's work because you're doing it for Christ. it's, It's like transposing something that's so ordinary. There's eight notes in a scale. Super ordinary. There's, what, five accidentals. So there's 13 notes on the piano. You realize every piece of music that's ever been written was using those 13 notes. You go listen to the Beethoven Piano Concerto or Beethoven's Fifth or Mozart or whatever you like, jazz, whatever music you're into. It's taking ordinary stuff that's been transformed. That's in a sense what God does with our work. He takes this ordinary stuff that everybody's doing and through Christ it gets turned into worship. In the Old Testament, God's people would bring ordinary, stinky sheep and offer them as a sacrifice to God. Nothing special about the sheep. There's nothing sacred about sheep. They stank and ate and pooped and did all the other stuff that sheep do. But when they're sacrificed with a heart of faith, the aroma of them burning is accepted by God as an act of worship. Sheep and shops, both together, can be offered to Jesus as worship. You don't have to be doing something churchy. Be focused. I need to move on here. A third attitude we must have if we're going to work for the glory of Jesus, we should be respectful, we should be focused, but number three, we should be diligent. This should be, the, be quite obvious. We come on into verse 6, he says, okay, as you obey, you don't obey according to eye service, not to this lowly standard of just when the boss is watching, as men pleasers, but again, notice, as the servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. He says, don't, real diligence is serving the king. It's not simply working for human approval. It's not just working to, when, when the boss walks in the room. Okay, eye service, if you want to think about eye services, it's when everybody's just kind of messing around and they're scrolling, and then someone's like, the boss is coming. So everybody really quickly looks busy, grabs the nearest hammer, and begins to look like they're doing something. Uh, that's eye service, working only when you are being watched, only when you will be noticed. That's not the standard we work by. That's not the measly measurement we use of doing the bare minimum, but the standard is the transcendent standard of doing what pleases the God who's always in the room. 
this impulse to be men pleasers, to, to just, I, I, want, I want to make people happy, and if I don't get their approval, then I'm sad. This is called the fear of man. This impulse to curry human favor can corrupt any endeavor. You realize Jesus in Matthew 6 said, you can pray and do it to be seen of men. So if sin can follow us into the prayer closet, you better believe that sin can follow you into the workplace as well. We ought to guard our hearts. So he says, instead, work as the servants of Christ. Now notice the word play. Servants, obeying your master according to the flesh. This is awesome. So you're not really servants just of your master. You're servants of Christ. I love how Paul takes this image that we would regard as kind of a nasty image of slavery. Romans 1 verse 1. Paul a servant of Jesus Christ. He uses to say, this is my relationship with Jesus is one of, he's my master and I'm his servant. In fact, we come right here to the very heart of the gospel. Serving Jesus, being him being our master. What, what this text is saying is, instead of working to get approval, we should work and obey as the slaves of Christ. You might be an employee of Austell or Chevron, or Ingalls, or Cloverleaf Baptist Church for me, or University of South Alabama. But ultimately, any job you work for, any company you work for, is owned by the same CEO. It's owned by Jesus. Every boss ultimately is under the authority of King Jesus. Now, lower management, the person who owns your company, the guy you actually answer to, Earthly CEOs and supervisors, they will always be imperfect and unjust. But upper management, the one who ultimately rules all things according to the counsel of his will, he doeth all things well. We serve Christ, the one who loves us and gave himself for us. Now this image of slavery and and liberation is central to the storyline of the Bible. We go back to the book of Exodus. This is sort of the ultimate picture of redemption is God is redeeming Israel from slavery so that they could serve God. You're either going to serve Egypt or you're going to serve Yahweh. And it is Jesus' death on the cross that frees us from the slavery to sin and makes us slaves of righteousness. Romans 6.18 says, being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. There's only two people in this, two kinds of people in this world. People who are slaves to sin and people who are slaves to righteousness. The notion, I want to be free, and I'll do whatever I want. You're obeying your whims. That is the worst tyranny you can have, is being under the tyranny of your own sinful heart. Jesus redeems us. We'll all be someone's servant. We'll all serve either under the gentle yoke of Christ or the heavy yoke of sin. We'll either crumble like a Coke can under the weight of slavery to our own lusts, or we will find joy, fulfilling joy in the servant's service of the Lord Jesus. We have been liberated, as it were, from Egypt's slavery so we can serve Yahweh at Mount Sinai. Same Hebrew word. Let my people go that they may serve me. Either you're serving Egypt or you're serving Yahweh. You're either serving sin or you're serving righteousness. And so many people today will choose slavery in Egypt over freedom in the desert. I'd rather do what I want to do and be under the lordship of sin and be my own boss, then bow the knee to Jesus. In fact, people will choose that with the consequences of hell. They would, rather, they would rather rule in hell than serve in heaven. To quote from, I think that's Milton. Many will, when given the choice between thy will be done or my will be done, will choose my will every time. So this image of 
servants of Christ. You're either a servant of Jesus or you're a servant of sin. That's one or the other. And you can go from one to the other. You can be rescued from the slave market of sin by repenting and trusting in Jesus. And find long-term joy. So as Christ's servants, he says, we do the will of God from the heart. What do servants of Christ do? They do the will of God. That's our mission. That's your mission. Tomorrow morning when you clock in, it is to do the will of God from the heart. On Tuesday afternoon when you're kind of getting tired and everyone is sort of like, hey, let's just kind of, kind of mess around here a little bit. It's to do the will of God from the heart. And tomorrow night when you get home and maybe you and your spouse aren't quite getting along, your, your mission there is to do the will of God from the heart every waking moment to do the will of God. So what does it mean to do the will of God? You ever wondered that? Sometimes this idea of doing the will of God this concept gets shrouded in the shrubbery of hyper-spiritualized language where people are like, well, I just feel God's will and he's leading me to do this. And you think, man, they're really spiritual. I don't feel that kind of thing unless I like, get too much paprika on my chicken, then I feel something. What does it mean to, to know and to do the will of God? It's not about a mystical feeling. It's not about throwing out fleeces or cutting open chicken livers. It's not about promptings or leadings or signs or visions or any of the other things that we have piled onto Scripture complicating it. What does it mean to do God's will? It means very simple, simply doing this. Obeying God's commands. And in this case, obeying God's command to work hard at your job. That's what it means to do God's will. So you say, what is God's will for me tonight? Is to brush your teeth. What's God's will for me tomorrow when I go to work? It's to do the best job that I can to the glory of Jesus. That is doing the will of God. It means ensuring that you're engaging, you're, you're, it means you're avoiding immoral work or unethical work. It means embracing a calling that fits your God-given desires, strengths, and qualifications. By all means, change jobs. By all means, look for promotions. But whatever it is that you do, do it as to Christ. Now, in the book of Ephesians, the will of God it's not so much the individual personal will of what does God want me to do? Do I need to go move to, to Albuquerque or to Mobile? No. The will of God in Ephesians is God's unfolding plan for the ages. This plan that God has hidden in himself from the foundation of the world, but is now making known through Jesus Christ. His plan to sum up all things under the headship and the lordship of Jesus. A plan that is already underway to unite Jew and Gentile in the body of Christ to make a new creation. What is God doing in the world? There was a paradise that was lost through sin that is being regained through Christ, and it's gotten underway. The building is being renovated, the building is being rebuilt, and it's already started. How do we know? Every saint, every sinner who becomes a saint, every individual who is born again is part of this new creation. It's the first fruits of the harvest. It's the overture to the, to the play. God's redemption of sinners. So what does that mean for my job? It means I look at my job through the lens of what is it that God is doing in the world? He's redeeming. He's recreating. Now, when we see work through that lens, God's recreating the creation mandate, and one day we're going to a new heaven and a new earth, to a garden city temple. That allows me to work from my soul. Notice the, the end of, of Ephesians 6 and verse Six from the heart, the word there is actually soul. As opposed to just eye service on the outside, this is work, a work ethic that comes from your own heart because you're doing God's will. You're seeing your job as this is God's will as much as going out and giving out tracts. 
doing God's will. Now, when we see work through that lens, when we recognize that we're working for Christ, obviously our work should never be shoddy, should never be the shoddy corner-cutting stuff that passes muster these days. It should be top-notch. By the way, sometimes folks get the idea of, oh, I'm going to do this thing for the church, and so it can be sort of slipshod. No, it should be the other way. I'm doing something for Christ. It should be top-notch. It should be done with excellence. And since everything is done for Christ, everything we should do should be done with excellence. There's an apocryphal quote that's ascribed to Martin Luther. He probably didn't say it, but it kind of captures his theology of, of work. He says, what does it mean for a Christian cobbler to be a Christian cobbler? He says this, it doesn't mean that he goes around putting little crosses on the shoes that he makes. It means that he makes a good pair of shoes. To do Christian work does not mean that you go find a boss who's a Christian and only work for a company that hires Christians that does Christian-y things. It means you go and do a really good job at whatever your job is. That is Christian work. We're working for one who's infinitely higher than any president or CEO or governor or president or king or queen. So that leads us into our fourth attitude. Be eager. Verse 7, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to man. We've gotten this message over and over again. Paul, it's like he's taking the nail and he's driving it in and every verse is another hammer blow to be work for Christ, work for Christ, work for Christ, not your boss, not just for human beings, not just horizontal, but have a vertical mentality, not just a temporal frame, but an eternal frame. So this saying, be eager, that word with good will, with a good mind, with a good attitude, doing service, this is eagerness, not this reluctance. It's easy for us to turn into toddlers. We all have a toddler living inside of us. To get huffy when we're told to do something we don't want to do. <sighs> Roll the eyes, get, get an attitude, drag our feet. So Paul says, do your work with a good attitude, a positive attitude that's exhibited in that work relationship. Work with enthusiasm and diligence and joy. Listen, if you recognize, I, I think a lot of what we struggle with in our work, and I even struggle with, I'm a pastor, get up and preach sermons. I struggle with this sometimes. Like, man, I'm going to put in 20 hours writing a sermon this week. I'm going to preach one time. It's going to be heard by 50 people and then probably forgotten. And nobody's ever going to come back and be like, let me get the printed works of Sam Sinclair. It's not going to happen. It's going to end up in a dumpster one day, and I'll be forgotten. My name will be on a tombstone. There'll be a little dash, and that'll be my life. That's true of all of us to feel like, does my work really matter? And so if it doesn't feel like it matters, why should I put in the effort? Right? If I already know that I've failed the class, why study? Right? But when I realize that my work, whether writing sermons or designing boats, or balancing books, or Excel spreadsheets, or fixing equipment, or changing oil, whatever the job is. When I realize it's done for the king and it will matter a million years from now. It'll matter a million years from now, not because it changes the course of human history, but because God sees it and God rewards it. Then I've got a motivation to work with joy. Joy is directly connected with our sense of, what, of, 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 of our work mattering. Our work matters in God's sight, therefore, we can do any task with joy, with a good attitude, with goodwill, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. We're told in Psalm 100, serve the Lord with gladness, come into his presence with singing. And yes, that's talking about entering the temple and going to church, so to speak, but it's also about going to work. 
serving the Lord with gladness. I don't mean a fake facade of perpetual happiness. Sometimes you get this idea, you go in the Christian bookstore, well, they don't exist anymore, but when they did, the sense that Christians are always just happy and they go around putting little doilies on everything. No, the Christian life can be hard, but it is a place of joy. Okay, number five, and this will really roll into number six. These are very similar. Be expectant. Why should we do all of this? Why should I work even when I don't feel like it? Why should I be respectful even when I don't really want to be respectful to my boss? Why? Because it will be worth it all when we see Christ, knowing, verse 8. And the, and the sense of this could even be rendered because you know. Here's something that you know. Here's some theology that you believe, and now I'm going to connect it to your daily life. Knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free, okay, whether you're the CEO or the janitor, and ye masters, you, you CEOs and bosses and supervisors and overseers, do the same things to them, forbearing, threatening, knowing, because you know, that your master and theirs, it's the text variant there, also is in heaven, neither is their respect of persons with him. It's going to be rewarded. Everything is going to be rewarded. Every work is going to be judged to the judgment seat of Christ. So be expectant of that day that is coming. Why should we be expectant? Because he rewards each and every one of his servants. Verse 8, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, each and every. It's not just all the groups like, all right, you know, the judgment seat of Christ is not going to be okay. All the plumbers come forward. Good job, you get the plumber's badge. Like, that's not how it's going to work. Each And every individual, every work shift, every hour, every minute, any good thing that you did to the glory of Christ will be rewarded. What does he mean by good thing? I don't think he means a list of just good deeds. Every time you gave money to the church and prayed, and those are good things. But every time you went to work with a joyful heart, it'll be rewarded on the day of judgment. Every time you did the right thing, even when it wasn't easy. Every time you worked with integrity when everyone else wanted to do the unethical thing. Every good thing that an individual does, he will reward individually. So Paul here is connecting what we know, God rewards us on the day of judgment, with what we do, go to work and do a good job. He's taking theology that we believe and applying it to the lives that we live. It's how we do theology. It's not just theology's here and life's here, but all theology is practical. The doctrine of eternal reward motivates our diligence and daily work, whatever good we do. So whether you are cutting grass or writing code or driving cars or filing taxes or rebuilding engines or painting houses or starting IVs or mopping floors or writing wills or welding hulls or designing houses or pulling wire or cleaning dishes or raising children or changing diapers or driving trucks, all can be done for the glory of Christ and every good thing will be rewarded. Now, he goes on to say, in verse 8, whatever good thing any man does, the same shall he receive of the Lord. I love that little, shall he receive. Okay, future tense, it doesn't happen in this life. Think of all of the slaves whose labor was never paid for in the Roman Empire. And he's saying every Christian servant who's unpaid now will be rewarded then. Injustice is righted in the end. If ever there was an injustice in human history, it was wringing one's daily bread out of another man's labor. And Paul is saying, it'll be right in the end. Don't worry about the scales of justice. God will settle that. 
Now, that doesn't diminish the reality of injustice, but it does comfort us in the reality that every sin and injustice will be punished in the end, either in hell or on the cross. By the way, that protects us against the moral exhaustion of perpetual outrage and engaging in puritanical crusades against every injustice that we run into in our world. It also guards us against the pietistic resignation. This is who cares what happens. Now, here's the part I love. He's going to reward eternally. He shall receive that same words used in 2 Corinthians 5.10. We're all up here before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body, whatever he has done, whether it's good or bad. We're talking about on the doorstep of eternity. When we see Christ, everything being rewarded and it mattering for eternity. So you work 110,000 hours on this earth or more, and you're rewarded forever and ever and ever and ever in the presence of Jesus. That's awesome. That's awesome. We'll give account one day for every shift we worked, every moment we wasted, every paperclip we purloined, every employee you failed to pay, every dollar you earned, every opportunity you took, every good deed you did unnoticed, every job you did unpaid, every kind word you spoke, every thought you thought, not just while you were on the clock, but in all of life. It's a sobering reality. And by the way, if admittance to heaven were dependent on how I score on judgment day, my destiny would be hell. Okay? My only hope is the righteousness of Christ Here's the deal. Don't think of this as why well, I earned this. No, we deserve nothing. We're children of wrath. So any reward Jesus gives us is not a quid pro quo. Well, you worked, and so I pay you. We're just doing our duty, and he rewards us above and beyond because he's generous and because he is gracious. The fact that our king would reward us for doing what we're required to do and that he would reward us not merely in the brief interlude of life, but in the unending reality of eternity, that's pure grace. That's pure generosity. Now, whether slave or free, uh, those four words pull the rug out from under the institution of slavery. It'd be like, hey, this, your little social constructs are garbage, and I'm going to light them with a match. Earthly statuses don't matter. So it comes to the final point in verse 9 where he addresses the masters. And the fact that Jesus commands the masters tell us we should work worshipfully. We should be worshipful. Because Jesus commands both master and servant. Look at verse 9. You masters do the same things unto them. Man, that leveled the playing field, didn't it? You're not up here sitting in your cushy office telling everyone what to do and then being lazy yourself. You want your workers to work hard? Work hard yourself. You want them to respect you? You respect them. You want them to be eager and joyful in their job? You be eager and joyful in your leadership. What a, what a lesson on leadership. Jesus gives us this idea that leaders serve. He came to, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He says refusing threats. Uh, listen, if verbal threats are outlawed, how much more is physical violence prohibited? Now, here's my point. The ancient world, like slaves and masters, and masters are at the top of the pile Paul just came along and relativized all of that to say, Jesus is king over everything. He's the one who rules over the rulers. He's the one who is master over the master. He is the one who is the king over the kings. He is the one who is the Lord over the lords. He is the ruler over everything, over every square inch, over every waking moment, over every good endeavor. Is King Jesus. So worship him as you work. And verse 9 comes back again to say, 
Your master is in heaven and there's not respect of persons with him, echoing what he said in verse 8. You're going to be rewarded. So those who labor by leading, because leadership is itself a form of work, those who are supervisors and bosses who have this responsibility, they're accountable to Jesus. And those who labor under them are accountable to Jesus. Jesus is not impressed with human authority and power. There's no partiality with him. And one day all of us will stand before him. Now, I want to ask you this question. If you were going to stand before Jesus right now, trap door to open and boom, you are in eternity. And if the standard for entrance into heaven is absolute perfection, would you be admitted to heaven? Or hear the fateful words, I never knew you. Entrance into heaven is never by our work or our works. It never can be because God's standard is so infinitely high and we fall so infinitely short of it. The only way any of us will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, is because the ultimate servant of Yahweh, Jesus Christ, died on the cross in our place. He worked and lived the perfect life that we never lived. And it's only if we are clothed in his righteousness, it's only if we are clinging to him in faith that any of us will enter into heaven. They say, I know for sure I'm going to heaven. One day you will stand and give an account. Will you work worshipfully for your master and for your king? Father, we bow to you. We pray, we plead that you would help us to have a transformed view of our work.